Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. He's never been held accountable. I mean, this is a man who held up the Bible and said he's never apologized to God because he's never done anything wrong. He doesn't understand accountability. And right now, Alvin Bragg has finally put that into his lap. Michael Cohen, former fixer for Donald Trump, will now be the star witness against him. Trump became the first former U.S. president to be indicted on Thursday. That's when a Manhattan grand jury decided there was enough evidence to go ahead with a criminal case against him for directing hush money payments to a porn star during his 2016 campaign. In a statement, Trump said he was completely innocent. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Bob, the charges are under seal, but it appears the case will be based on a novel legal theory involving elevating the misdemeanor of falsifying business records to a felony. Tell us how that will work. For prosecutors to turn falsifying business records into a felony rather than a misdemeanor, they're going to have to show Mr. Trump's intent to defraud. So I think we can expect prosecutors to turn this case all about the cover-up. Any successful prosecution will require evidence establishing that Mr. Trump tried to hide the repayment to Mr. Cohn through false book entries. And prosecutors will have to prove that Mr. Trump made or caused the false entries with an intent to defraud. Then prosecutors are going to have to tie that intent to defraud to commit or conceal a second crime. In this case, it's going to be a violation of election law. And that's really where it gets tricky for prosecutors, because in order to be successful here, they have to connect the hush money cover-up, a potential violation of state law, to a federal election. That's a legal theory that, to my knowledge, has never been before a state judge in New York. And New York state prosecutors, to my knowledge, have never before filed an election law case involving a federal campaign. So that is going to be the part of the legal case that I think is going to be attacked heavily by the Trump defense team. And that's really where this case may rise or fall. The facts are largely undisputed. The intent is something prosecutors are going to have to focus on. But the legal theory is novel. And whenever you have a novel legal theory, there's always the risk that a trial judge or an appellate judge will throw it out, saying that is not simply what the law says. Bob, is there a problem with a Manhattan DA prosecuting a federal election charge? Well, there may or may not be a problem with it. We just don't know because it's a novel theory that's never been tested before. And for prosecutors, that is a bit of a problem. As a prosecutor, you really don't want to be making new law. Prosecutors like to paint cases black and white. They like to show clear-cut violations of the law, something that a jury can look at and clearly understand was right or wrong. And in this case, while the facts of the case are straightforward, And while they are salacious and while a lot of jurors may find the allegations against Mr. Trump distasteful, the question is, does it amount to a 
violation of the criminal law in the state of New York. And in order to make this a felony violation, which is what prosecutors are doing here, they have to show that not only were the books and records misleading, they have to show that Mr. Trump knew about it and that he intended to defraud and that the purpose of this was campaign oriented, that it was not done simply to save his family from embarrassment, to save himself from embarrassment, but was done directly to influence the campaign. So that leads to one of Trump's possible defenses, which his attorneys have raised, that Trump wasn't concealing the hush money payment because of the campaign, but rather because he was trying to save his wife and family from embarrassment. Yes, I think we can expect a series of issues raised by the defense. I think we're going to see issues of prosecutorial misconduct thrown out there, selective prosecution, reliance on professional advice, that argument would go that he was relying on the advice of Michael Cohn, his former lawyer who has now become a prosecution star witness, to say that Mr. Cohn said these payments were fine and he was the one that actually made the payments. But central to it is really the question of whether or not these payments can be tied directly to the campaign. And Mr. Trump is going to say, I wanted to save my wife, Melania, from the embarrassment of these allegations. Again, he continues to deny the affair. But he's going to point out that even the allegations themselves would be something that would be embarrassing to him and his family. And that's why he made these payments. And as a result, it does not affect the campaign. It was not done for purposes of benefiting the campaign. And that would deny prosecutors that critical link between the falsification of business records, which should be fairly easy for them to prove with the campaign, which is what will turn this misdemeanor charge into a potential felony. I think we can definitely expect a motion based on selective prosecution because because Trump has been saying he's being targeted by a Democratic DA. Those are motions that I think we could absolutely expect. I think those motions are really more for public consumption than for legal consumption. They're not likely to prevail, particularly in a court in New York State. This is the first time a former president has ever been prosecuted So he's going to argue that it's being done for political reasons. And one of the issues that I think we can expect him to raise is the fact that he's now a declared candidate for president. And he's going to try to argue that this is being done in order to prevent him from being elected to to the presidency in 2024. That's something that may resonate with the public at large. I don't think it's going to resonate directly with a judge. I think a judge is going to be looking at these other legal issues whether or not the prosecutors in New York actually have made out a case under New York law. That's something that the defense will also focus on. And frankly, that's the issue that I think they may have a greater possibility of succeeding on. Let's talk timing. Trump's attorneys have already said they're going to file motions aggressively. How long do you think before this would get to trial? Well, Jim, that's a really interesting question because this is just the beginning of this case. And I think we are going to see a flurry of motions filed by the Trump defense team, all of which take time because prosecutors have to respond to it in writing. There's got to be argument on it. And a judge ultimately has to make a decision. And I think we're going to see the Trump defense team trying to delay this trial as long as possible. There won't be a perp walk, but tell us what will happen on Tuesday when Trump turns himself in. Well, what's going to happen as a practical matter here is that Secret Service agents will actually escort Mr. Trump 
to the Manhattan DA's office where he will have his fingerprints taken. He'll have a mugshot taken. They will swab his cheek to get a mandatory sample for the New York DNA database. They will get what's called pedigree information, which will be his background, date of birth, all that type of information that they routinely collect against anybody who's charged with a crime. So in the one sense, he will be treated as any other defendant would. On the other hand, just by the nature of who he is and the fact that he is a former president, there will be special precautions that are taken. I think all this will be done very much out of the public eye so that there won't be hordes of media following him around while all this is going on. But he nonetheless will still have to show up and go through that processing as any other defendant. And it will be a first in American history to see a former president go through the processing as any other criminal defendant would. And finally, Bob, there's been a lot of talk about this case not being as consequential as the Georgia case or the special counsel's cases. Explain why the Manhattan DA didn't have to consider what other prosecutors were doing. Sure. Well, the Manhattan DA's office has the ability to present evidence to a grand jury in New York, and they will decide ultimately whether to turn an indictment. Here, that's exactly what they've done, and this case is now moving towards trial. The parallel investigations that are going on in Georgia, the federal investigation that's being handled by the special counsel in connection with the January 6th insurrection, those will all move along independent of this process, and those prosecutors will make their own decisions about if and when to present charges to grand juries. Ultimately, there is the possibility that Mr. Trump could be facing criminal charges on multiple fronts at the same time. And that's a situation where prosecutors and judges, whether they are in Georgia, whether they are in Washington, D.C., whether they are in New York, will all have to decide how to coordinate these cases moving forward. And of course, from the defense side, they will be arguing that they cannot be defending three cases simultaneously. And so prosecutors will have to decide which case is going to move forward when. And that's something that has never happened before. And there's really no clear answer exactly as to how those cases will proceed if more than one indictment is ultimately brought against Mr. Trump. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter and English. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. At the center of the Supreme Court's case was Hellman Hansen, a man convicted of duping hundreds of undocumented immigrants into paying him extensive fees by falsely promising they could become citizens through his adult adoption program. The Ninth Circuit wiped out Hansen's convictions for encouraging illegal immigration, not because he was guilty, but because the Ninth Circuit found the law was unconstitutionally overbroad and criminalized speech protected by the First Amendment. The law has been on the books since 1952. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, tell us a little more about this law. The law at issue is basically a large patch-all, which basically at its core is trying to prevent people who are here inside the United States from participating in some scheme to help undocumented people either arrive in the United States or live in the United States. And basically what it's meant to do is to discourage people who live in America from in some way engaging or helping in adding to the problem of illegal immigration in America. The problem is that statute is so broad that it says that it makes it a crime to induce people to remain in the United States, not just induce people to come to the United States, but to induce people to remain in the United States. And so in this case that was before the Supreme Court, even though the issue wasn't really about that, it was about a person who was charging for a scam to help people stay in the United States using an adoption scheme, and that scheme really wasn't going to work, the Ninth Circuit said, well, wait a second, while we're taking a look at this statute, this seems to really be an overbroad statute here, because why is there a statute that criminally punishes people for, quote-unquote, inducing people without status to stay in the United States? What does that mean? Does it mean that if you run a soup kitchen and you let undocumented people in, and now they stay in America because they're not starving to death, that you're guilty of this? Does it mean if you tell your grandmother who's undocumented, please say, I love you, you're inducing her to stay, and now you're guilty of this? And so there was a lot of examples given of things that this would conceivably punish, and that's why the Ninth Circuit said the statute was overbroad and violated the First Amendment, and so you couldn't actually use this inducement statute in order to prosecute people. And that's what the Supreme Court was looking at today. Is that true that the statute is overbroad and violates the First Amendment? Or can the statute be interpreted in a manner where it doesn't violate the First Amendment? I mean, what's funny about this case, or ironic, is that the defendant here is the kind of defendant the law was intended to stop. He was convicted of duping hundreds of undocumented immigrants into paying him excessive fees by promising a pathway to citizenship through an adult adoption program. So a totally bogus program. This is the guy that the law was intended to stop. 
Correct. There is no dispute that the law can criminalize what this individual did. The dispute in this particular case is that the jury instructions in this individual's case were written in a way where if you apply those jury instructions to anybody, even the person who said, Grandma, please stay in America, I will miss you and I'll be very depressed if you leave, theoretically that person is inducing their grandmother to stay in America when she was otherwise wanting to leave and was technically then in violation of the statute. And so the question is, what do you do in a case like this? This is what the Supreme Court was grappling with, where what a person did was clearly, by any way you would interpret the statute, illegal, but the way the jury instructions were written, it would capture a lot of conduct that might not be deemed criminally culpable. And so the court spent a lot of time today asking, well, have there ever been cases like this where the ones like were warning people, hey, these are the kinds of cases that could actually be criminalized. And there was one case in a district court in Massachusetts that had this type of thing, but that was one, and the statute was written in 1952. So the point that the government was trying to make is, if you take one case, one prosecution of questionable merit in the last 80 years, that it should be proof that the statute isn't being interpreted over broadly and thus it shouldn't be stricken down. Whereas definitely the three liberal justices, I didn't really see a lot of support in this in the conservative justice realm, thought, wait a second, here's what's really bothering us with this statute, is that at the end of the day, being in America without status is not a crime at all. You know, maybe entering illegally is a crime. So when you entered illegally across the border, you committed a misdemeanor. But just being here is not a crime. Overstaying your visa is not a crime. And so why would it be a crime punishable by five years in prison to tell your grandmother, please stay in America, I miss you, when what your grandmother is doing is not actually a crime? And so that's the real issue that they were grappling with here, whether that would constitute a First Amendment violation. What were the concerns of the conservative justices, or where did they seem to be? The conservative justices actually, in this case, seem to show very little enthusiasm for really engaging in the way they usually do in immigration cases. I think it's because they just had a two-hour oral argument that was massive scientific issues that <laughs> seemed very confusing to everybody involved. And so sort of the energy was sapped from this oral argument. And so really, I think the conservative justices really just tried to stay at the point of saying, look, if there hasn't been questionable prosecutions in the last 80 years, number one, and number two, if you can limit this statute to basically what is known as aiding and abetting, meaning that what's really meant here is if you're aiding an undocumented person in a scheme, that's really what the inducement thing is talking about, not just, you know, giving charity or telling your grandmother to stay in America. If you're really aiding and abetting them in a scheme, the statute can be limited to that effect. That's basically the point that justices were making, but they were making them with maybe one or two questions. They weren't having the usual back and forth argument with the liberal side of the court. So it leads me to believe that I think the minds were made up pretty much, and it seems like it's going to be a 6-3 decision in favor of allowing the statute to remain 
albeit with a aiding and abetting requirement that makes it clear that the statute can't be interpreted to prosecute anybody just inducing somebody to say, but it has to be aiding and abetting some sort of scheme. So it'll be very interesting to see what the guidance is. But I didn't get the sense that the conservative justices wanted to say that the statute was unconstitutional. Well, it seems like they mostly took the case to reverse the Ninth Circuit anyway. Correct. I mean, I think that's why they would have taken this case. And there didn't seem to be any of the six conservative justices that were grappling with this in any way. Uh, And Justice Alito basically said, look, if you think that undocumented immigration is a problem that the government needs to address, then why is it inducing undocumented immigration a crime? So he was, he was sort of the most forceful on the side of, we really do need this statute. And the other five conservative justices, I think, basically didn't really make a fuss one way or the other, and were just asking perfunctory questions, but it didn't seem like they were seriously thinking that they would maintain the Ninth Circuit's decision here. President Joe Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a plan to close a loophole to an immigration agreement that's allowed thousands of asylum-seeking immigrants to move between the two countries along a back road linking New York State to the Canadian province of Quebec. I've been talking to immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Maybe you should start by explaining what the safe third country agreement is. Sure. So the safe third country agreement is a concept that exists worldwide, but exists specifically with Canada and with the United States. We both have laws that talk about this concept. And the concept is that while nations that are Western nations want to be welcoming toward true refugees and asylum seekers, What we don't want is to have a situation where people are gaming the system. And so the idea is, if you get to a country where you can realistically and credibly seek asylum, you should seek it there and stop trying to go to your most preferred country. Because the idea of asylum is to seek refuge from the possibility of persecution in your home country. It's not immigration in the sense of, Here is the ideal nation I want to go to. And so why that matters in the U.S.-Canada context is because many times, although the situation has exacerbated over the last year, but this has been an issue over the last 20 years, people will come to the United States and either they will lose their asylum case here and then decide to try their luck in Canada, or they will say, look, there's no chance I'm going to get asylum here in the United States. So let me just go to Canada and ask for asylum. Sometimes it happens the other way, where people will actually, because they can get a visa to go into Canada, will fly into Canada, or sometimes Mexicans don't even need visas to go to Canada. So they'll fly into Canada, and then because the northern border is not really fortified in any way, it's 4,000 miles long, and it has maybe one-tenth of the border patrol of the 2,000-mile Mexican border, what you see is Mexicans will just walk right into the U.S. through the Canadian southern border, the U.S. northern border. And so the idea was, well, now a trade might be needed to be made, because even though for the last few years we've had this safe third country agreement, which says that if you 
enter the United States and you then appear at a port of entry on the Canadian-U.S. border, you can't get asylum in Canada. You have to go back and ask for it in the United States. That was not true if you entered illegally into Canada. You could kind of have a loophole around this where you went in between the ports of entry and not at a port of entry. So what people were doing, and this was growing over the last year, and it was primarily Haitian immigrants because they speak French and they were trying to go to Quebec where French is more prevalently spoken. And also the idea that Canada is easier to win asylum than the United States. They were all entering through an unofficial port of entry, which was really just a crossing that was easy to cross the state. But the idea was that they could present themselves there and then they would be eligible to apply for asylum. So what's the latest agreement between Canada and the U.S.? So what the U.S. and Canada have done is they've now excluded that ability to go in between the ports of entry and have a loophole to the safe third country agreement. So what they're saying now is wherever you land, whether it's Canada or America, you have to apply for asylum there. You will be banned from applying for asylum in the second country. A sort of a practical question is, Canada was after a change in this third country agreement. Why didn't they just close that unofficial crossing themselves? They did not feel as if they had a legal provision within their domestic law that prevented them from excluding asylum seekers who had come in between their ports of entry. And they did not want to get into a situation where they passed a new law diminishing asylum. They thought that was politically untenable. What they wanted to do is work within their existing legal framework that had this safe third country agreement. And because of that, what they did was they expanded what the safe third country agreement provided for. And so they were able to do this in a way where they were able to save face and say, you see, we're not at all trying to lower our commitment to refugees. What we're trying to do is just have an orderly process. So if you go to the U.S. first, no reason you shouldn't apply to the U.S. If you go to Canada first, no reason you shouldn't apply in Canada. I understand that Canada, and particularly Quebec, have been having problems with migrants. But does the United States have a problem with migrants coming from Canada? Not a lot, but what will happen occasionally is, one, there are certain groups of Mexicans that don't need visas to go to Canada. So what will happen is that group of Mexicans may decide that it's actually easier and safer to fly to Canada and just, let's say, take a boat to the United States across one of our Great Lakes or do something like that and ask for asylum or not even ask for anything, just come illegally to the United States. They may decide that's a better way to do it. And so there's a little bit of that. And so this safe third country agreement, in order to make it reciprocal, we said that those people couldn't apply for asylum in the U.S. Not that that happens a lot. But the other thing that occasionally will happen is Canada is at least perceived. It's not really that true anymore. It used to be more true than now. As having a little bit easier path toward getting a visa than the United States. And so the idea was you could be from any country, any of the 200 countries in the world, and you could get a visa to go to Canada. And the idea was you didn't actually want to apply for asylum there because obviously it's too cold or whatever. You want to come live in the United States. And so you use Canada as your entry point into the hemisphere 
and then you actually just cross into the United States and it's there where you apply for asylum. And so now this agreement makes it clear that that also will not be permitted. Everybody knows that the Canadians are nicer than we are, Leon. You know that. Yes. Um, It's just that it's too cold. That's the problem. (laughs) Tell me why Canada agreed to accept 15,000 more migrants in compensation for the closure. I mean, it just struck me as odd requiring another country to accept more migrants. The idea was that right now a lot of the problems that are being caused both in the U.S. and in Canada – are because of too much pressure in the southern border with regard to undocumented migration. So what the U.S. said is, look, Justin Trudeau, we know you have a political problem in Quebec with people who are very angry at you because you're not doing anything to close this little loophole. And so if you want to close this little loophole, you will help us reduce the pressure along the southern border by taking 50,000 migrants a month and actually bringing them into Canada. And so in that way, the idea is, one, it sort of helps everybody by reducing the illegal pressure on both the Canadian border and the U.S. border. But two, it's something that the U.S. could say they extracted, given that they were going to have to take all of these people that would otherwise have gone into Canada. Now they have to go in the U.S. So the idea is maybe we can actually trade that number by making Canada take a similar number legally into Canada. And there's an appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada challenging the constitutionality of the safe third country agreement. Yes, and so that's going to obviously be under Canadian law. Safe third country agreement is recognized under the Refugee Convention as something that countries can do. The question is whether it's a realistic option The problem that the folks challenging this in Canada are going to have is it's going to be very hard to say that asylum is not available in the United States. But what they're pinning their argument on is quite fascinating, which is how long our immigration courts are taking and how backlogged they are. And so if our courts are taking six, seven, eight years to adjudicate asylum claims, maybe you can make an argument that asylum is not available in the United States. That's Leon Fresco of Holland at Night. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.